0: Moncrief on News Talk.
1: Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.
0: You are listening to The Moncrief Show on News Talk. It is indeed time for our Christmas parenting. Joanna Fortune joins us once again. Afternoon, Joanna. Afternoon, Sean. Uh, Maybe later on, we'll ask you about uh, is it uh, uh, advisable or ethical to give children sleeping tablets on New Year's or on Christmas Eve night or not? Oh, Uh, contentious debate, yeah. uh, um, Right. Uh, First question is, we got a message from our six-year-old son's teacher uh, saying that he seemed a bit quiet at times uh, and loud at other times and is rushing his work. She said his work is excellent, but he's rushing everything. He is the top reader in his class and also top at maths. However, he seems a bit obsessed about finishing first, being first in the line, etc. He's an only child and we are very loving, attentive parents but are a bit worried he may be a bit obs- obsessive. We were wondering, do we need to seek therapy or is there anything we can do to help him?
1: This is so interesting and I'm wondering, you know, in general, is this child a competitive child? You know, there's something in this about he's the top reader, he's top at maths, He now he's in pursuit of finishing first and I, I'm just wondering, Sean, if, you know, given he's the best at reading and maths already, He's only six. But if he's already achieved that, look, I'm the best at this and everybody knows it. Perhaps aspiring to be the quickest is the new challenge he's put in place to motivate Mm. himself. You know, some people are really motivated in pursuit of reward. But if I'm already the best at those things, I need something else that's going to push me and drive me. And I'm wondering, is this just in school or is this something that's pervasive, you know, in all aspects? And for example, in his activities, his sports, do you also see the these traits. I mean, as always, I'm going to say focus really hard on praising his effort over outcome. And so he he learns that what really in, is worth doing is putting in the effort regardless of the result. And I also think particularly because we're coming into the Christmas period now, he's going to be at home with you and you're going to have more time with him to really promote collaborative play because I, there's nothing wrong with children or adults, to be honest with you, being motivated by challenge and enjoying challenge based activities and challenge-based play because it really encourages us to stretch ourselves beyond our comfort zone to promote that kind of self-esteem and self-efficacy and mastery over tension. There's loads of great pro-social skills in it. But within challenge play, you've obviously got the competitive element, but we can't overlook the importance of the collaborative element. And I think with a child who is already showing those competitive signs, even if he's only in competition with himself, promoting collaborative play might be worth doing. I'm thinking things like building Lego and getting rid of the instruction manuals and just having a big box of, General Lego blocks and doing something that you create, you co-create together. Um, I also think that game. I always think of games at, at Christmas time, but Twister is a good one because it's not about winning; it's about just getting all tangled up and testing yourself and working together to try achieve what you're doing. But as well, playing games where winning or losing are really unpredictable and aren't something that we strategize. I'm thinking specifically of something quite basic like snakes and ladders. I, it's a role of a dice. You could be winning one minute and then sliding down the snake at the next minute. So I really think if you focus on that type of play and interaction with him and just having fun doing and really building that message, it might help. Based on what's in this letter, because I'm conscious the question at the end is, you know, do you need to seek therapy? I'm not seeing a therapy flag at the moment, but if... This issue is beyond what we're getting in the letter. And the parent listening is saying, Do you know what? It is pervasive. It's actually stopping him having fun and enjoying learning and enjoying activities then that is something you could revisit. But I also wonder if, you know, given the teacher has flagged it to you, might the teacher be able to assign a little bit of extra work in these subjects that he's actually showing high competence in, just to keep it interesting for him and keep it stimulating for him so that he's not going to create areas of stimulation, such as putting, I'll be the quickest and putting that kind of competitive aspect in.
0: Mm. I'm surprised though, the person says he's the top reader in the class and top at maths. So I'm surprised that in a class of six year olds they have some sort of grading system there where people are given poll positions.
1: And, you know, it's we don't typically expect six-year-olds to be reading at that very competent level either. So he's clearly mm. a bright little kid and, you know, very capable. But, you know, what we really want with children this age, all ages, but really in these early years to build a love of learning is that they actually enjoy it. So it should be playful and fun because that's the best environment that children learn in. So I would, and that's what I mean by effort over outcome, you know, I'm not saying don't praise him for being good at these things but don't over focus on the academic side of it if he's not enjoying it then it's not a rich learning experience I'd much rather hear about six, seven, eight, nine year olds who love learning and love experimenting and love giving it a go than are actually super competent so never have the, the sort of competence in academia come at a cost of the pleasure and fun in it you have to find a way of that he gets back to enjoying it but he might, yeah. you know Sean just to say he might be a kid who quite enjoys competition. And, you know, that's why I'm thinking promoting challenge-based play that is also carrying the collaborative aspect and making sure he has activities that kind of enable him to scratch that itch. That might be fun and exciting for him, but I just don't want to see it come into learning because it will cause a difficulty
0: for him. Yeah. Our nine-year-old son wets his bed almost every night. We tried to transition him from pull-ups about four years ago using absorbent mats under his sheets, etc., and we failed, although he did try very hard when we bribed him with a PlayStation if he achieved two dry weeks about a fortnight ago we decided to try again as things got a bit worse in the last year he was getting bigger peeing more in his sleep and leaking through his pull-ups he managed a couple of dry nights with no absorbent maps and no pull-ups my husband would wake him at midnight to pee which worked well however he started wetting the bed again after a short time because he would not pee even when propped up in front of the toilet at midnight the extra washing was killing us. We we're already very busy, so we decided to put him in charge of changing the sheets, putting the wet clo- bed clothes into the washing machine, onto the line, etc., we thought that the extra workload would encourage him to pee when brought to the toilet. We rarely told him off for peeing, usually only losing our heads when we would have repeatedly wet the bed and we were on the third or fourth morning of changing bedclothes. The extra workload doesn't seem to inspire him. He doesn't seem to mind lying in his own urine, and we are now worrying that he either has something wrong with his bladder or we are trying uh, to uh, or we are trying too hard. My husband is getting very frustrated and cross with him about this. In addition, our son seems very nonchalant about it and this attitude is making us even more frustrated are we missing some trick should we bring him to the his gp in case he has bladder issues or has he some mindset that we need to help him with my husband is still bringing him to the toilet at midnight but as he isn't peeing when brought to the toilet in fact he gets cross when we wake him up we're tempted to revert to pull-ups but i see this as a step backwards and i'm not keen to go there
1: Oh, I mean, there's so much in this. And I, I really think, first of all, when somebody says, I only lose my head every fourth night, I'm just, let's be honest, by the time you've lost your head on on day three or four, you've been percolating in frustration for the days that came ahead of it. Mm. So it's not like you go from super calm to losing your head. There is a build up there. And it's OK to find this frustrating because it is frustrating. But it's really important. And I, I'm reading this and I get a very strong sense of how frustrating it is for parents but I'm wondering how he feels. I know that they're saying, oh, he's a bit nonchalant, but again, I'd be curious about that and what he might be showing you versus what's going on inside, because he's nine. He's going to be able to pick up on how everyone else is experiencing this. And I I think I would sit with him and let him know that you're going to consider other causes for this. You know, this is going on a really long time and we've tried lots of things to help and it isn't helping. And really try, try and communicate he's not alone because this isn't a child who is seeking to to cause you a difficulty at home and to add to your workload. He's having a difficulty in mastering this process. So he is not frustrating you. It's really important you give him that very clear message. The bedwetting is a frustrating experience. He is not frustrating. The behaviour is frustrating you. And don't assume he gets that. So I, I really think, you know, sort of peppered throughout this letter is that you've used a lot of behaviour modification techniques. Um, it seems to me on the assumption that he can control it and you're trying to motivate him to control it and get in charge of this. I'm now suggesting he's nine years old that you pause this approach and consider that perhaps he cannot control This that -hmm. it's not within his his capacity to master this because you've tried and you've given some pretty big incentive. I think a PlayStation is a pretty big incentivization, but I would say yes, make a GP appointment as a priority because there are lots of reasons that children do not master, um, you know, dry a nighttime dryness. It could be that he has a smaller bladder and he's not able to contain and hold urine. It could be some kind of hormonal cause, you know, the, the hormone that's produced at night to slow down the production of urine. Maybe that's not kicking in for him. Um, he, You know, there are other reasons that children bedwet, UTIs, constipation, sleep apnea, there's, there's lots of causes. So I would think at this stage, let's look beyond behavioural control and look at what's underpinning this behaviour. And I'm always a fan of ruling out the physical so at nine years old you know it's not unusual sean for children to take you know even up to seven years old to really get in control of this but once they're over seven yeah we would certainly get curious could there be another reason i think you're at a stage now of it's time to bring in a doctor if only to rule out a physical cause and that's certainly worth looking at but i think come at it with a little bit more compassion and kindness and it's easy for me to say that when you've been at this nine years and washing lots and lots of bedclothes over and over I do get the frustration truly but I think if you sit with him and say look we've all been getting a bit frustrated about this and I just want to make sure you know it's not you we're frustrated with it's that nothing we're doing is working so now we're going to come at this in a different way and involve him in that let him know what you're thinking and feeling and that you understand what he might be thinking and feeling as well.
0: My six-year-old, who hasn't experienced grief but is aware how he only has one grandparent, is obsessed by death, mummies, in graves, etc. He asked if babies die while they are still inside their mother's tummy, do the baby bones stay in their mummy's belly forever? Dark I know. He has told me about the ritual of the Indonesian tribe called the Departed, where people dig up the graves of their deceased beloved. I wasn't aware of this until he told me. I'm worried, as are these are very dark thoughts and musings, otherwise he's a happy happy boy with lots of friends. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I just think this last line is the bit, he's a happy boy with lots of friends apart from all that darkness. Um, but, you know, actually, there is a dark side to children. And it's something that we have to be careful not to psychopathologize because there's, I always say this, you know, there's a darkness in play and there's a lightness in play because there's a darkness in life and there's a lightness in life. And play really fuels that fully lived life. Children who are four to six years old and, you know, I, ages, as always, are flexible with this think developmentally but they're naturally super curious about everything including death even when they haven't you know had a direct or personal experience with loss or death so but their grasp on the permanence of death is evolving over the next number of years and you know he's maybe hitting it a little early but children when they're you know kind of eight nine their interest in death can become quite morbid and scientific like they want really specifics about decomposition and about science and about bodies and I just think, look at this, as he sounds to me, like a really clever, curious little kid. So I think, um, you know, there's always the chance that somebody has put something in his head, you know, in school, maybe something was said. He's clearly, I mean, his his, his anthropological knowledge on this is is intriguing. So I'm wondering, mm. did this come up in a history lesson in school or in something like that? Um I do think maybe get a book. You know, when it comes to death, Sean, so much of our difficulty in talking to our children about it is that it's a difficult topic for us because he may not have experienced a personal loss or death, but as a parent, maybe we have. And that can make it a, oh gosh, this is really dark and difficult to talk about. Maybe find a way that you can frame this. There's a lovely book, um, I have it myself at home. It's called, uh, Let's Talk About When Someone Dies. It's by Molly Potter. I've mentioned Molly Potter on this show before in talking about her book, um, how are you feeling? Because it gives that lovely uh, choice of how you can express a range of feelings. But this one is so factual, so specific, and so accessible for children. In you know what? Let's talk about when someone dies. It talks about death, bodies, burial, cremation. It talks about everything in there. And it is for children. As always, though, as a parent, pre-read the book before you read it with your child so there are no surprises for you. And that way you decide, oh, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with some parts of this. You get to decide that. But I think, you know, he's clearly bringing a lot of questions to you. That's a good thing. He has a very curious mind. That's a good thing. And it's really about making sure that you know, you're framing the information he's getting. So he's not getting anything confusing or contradictory, or he's not inadvertently getting a message that he should not bring questions to you. So maybe a book is a helpful way
0: to just frame it for him. Yeah. And I suppose if you think about it, like death is a, a, a baffling idea. Oh, That absolutely. you just stop. And, and, and for a child particularly, it's kind of takes some years probably to wrap their head around it.
1: Oh, it totally does. And especially, you know, he's still only six. And we've lots of questions about six-year-olds today. But, you know, he's still only six. So at this age, you've also, from a play perspective, they're still in that developmental phase of magical, omnipotent thinking where things can die and come back to life. They're really interested in, and it even says it here in mummies, but also zombies and this whole idea of, well, what happens after you die? So his questions are
0: completely developmentally appropriate. Yeah, indeed. Uh, You did mention books, uh, and so uh, someone's asking for book recommendations. I was wondering if Joanna could recommend some good books on birth order and how to parent children based on this. I have three children, four, two and one. I've seen how being the eldest or middle child, etc., has affected people in my family and and my husband's family. So I was looking for tips on how best to manage this. We've no specific problems so far. I'm just trying to prepare and preempt. Typical eldest daughter behaviour on my part, uh, uh, says this person. I thought that actually the middle child thing actually was a myth.
1: Yeah, you see, and I mean, I love recommending books, but I'm not going to recommend books here because I'm not actually a big proponent of birth order in this kind of perspective way. you know, that it's very, oh, it's about personality formation because actually... You're absolutely right. It's been disproven. Research doesn't bear it out, but it still is very dominant in, you know, pop psychology, popular culture, the kind of narrative of middle child syndrome. All of that still exists. And really what we see is that how we parent and how we are parented makes much more impact than any assigned birth order. So be very aware of self-fulfilling prophecies here, because, you know, the fact just because I'm saying, oh, well, research has disproven it. It still matters that it's popular in popular culture and in pop psychology, because if I believe this to be true, I will parent with that in mind so I'm mm. also feeding into this birth order piece in how I parent my eldest child versus my middle child and my young I mean nothing has even happened here because this parent is preempting and then taking yourself off the hook going, oh no classic eldest child behavior mm-hmm. you know um, so I, I I'm going to say you know look at your age arrangement here you've got a four-year-old a two-year-old and a one-year-old you're specifically focused on your two-year-old who was only one when your one-year-old came The baby came along. So if anything, you want to make sure that your two-year-old gets additional one-to-one time with you as much as you can manage with a four-year-old, two-year-old and one-year-old in the house. Because actually... He was only a baby when the next baby came along. So if anything, just a little bit of that, you know, your four-year-old had lots of time with just being the one and only in your eyes. The two-year-old didn't have that. That maybe have more impact than the fact that they happen to be the second child. So, you know, I think there are so many other variables that go on. But if you believe, no, no, birth order is the thing, you will parent with that in mind. And you know what? You will be right but it's yeah. not necessarily because of birth order. And as I said, the research really doesn't bear out that whole middle child syndrome thing.
0: Joanna, thanks a million as ever. Thanks again for thanks. all your contributions to the year. Happy Christmas to you, and we'll talk to and you. And to, you to in the everyone New year. else.
1: Take care. Moncrief brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank. Think again.
0: Weekdays at 2 PM on News Talk.